It's good to see you all. It's great to be with you. Uh, we are talking in Philippians chapter 2, 19 through 30 today, but let me start by introducing a friend of mine to you. Uh, his name is Munyong Gary Bracious, sharpest dressed man in all of Rwanda. <laughs> Wherever you see him, he, he doesn't know what um, earth tones are, just to say it that way. But when a few years ago, Lisa, my wife, and I were hitting one of those waves that was coming at us, and it was overwhelming us, and it was some issues, health issues with my daughter, and just some things that, just those things in life that happened to you, my wife looked at me and said, will you let Moon Young Gary, we just call him Bracious, will you let Bracious know to pray for us? Because that's how he holds a place in our heart. Because we felt like when Bracious is praying, something happens, like God has an extra portal to him or something. Will you let him know? You know, I first met this man. I was invited to do a, uh, I was invited to go to Rwanda for this outreach, evangelism outreach. And I was invited to go and also do like a pastor's conference for like three days with Rwandan pastors. So I went and I prepared all my best stuff that I thought was really good, you know, and like little quips around leadership. And I studied and I was going to teach out of First and Second Timothy. And I was going to bring all this amazing word from America. So I go into this room and there's about 200 pastors sitting in this room, a room that had no electricity. The uh, pulpit was made out of logs and kind of bent to the right a little bit. There was a drum there and 200 guys, like I said. I suddenly realized everything I had prepared may not land well. As they just looked at me and said, go. But before they actually, I started to preach, they said we're going to sing a song. And how they sing there, they don't have a band or kids. One guy just goes on a drum and starts a beat. And that's all they use. And they just start singing praises to God. It was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. And as I was teaching for the next three days through the book of Timothy, um, I really felt overwhelmed and out of my league. But at the end, this guy came up to me and said, I will do what you taught. And me being me, I'm like, oh yeah, what is that? <laughs> I'm going to go plant churches where my brothers won't. I'm going to go out to the villages in Rwanda where the genocide probably started and plant churches where witch doctors have their way and I'm going to go plant churches. And to honor you, Dale, I'm going to call them the Churches of Dale. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. That's a terrible, terrible idea. In my mind, being, being American and, and uh, what I'm used to, a church planting, I said, man, how much money does it cost to plant a church in Rwanda? Like, what do you need? Thinking he was asking me for money. He's like, Dale, all we need to do to plant a church here is a tree for shelter, a drum to sing, and the Bible to teach. I'm like, wait, what? Because <laughs> I already have the Holy Spirit. We just need a tree, a drum, and the Bible, and we call it a church. Because, yeah, I need some people, too. But that's besides the folks. Since that time, this man has planted five churches in Rwanda, in the villages. And a couple of years ago, I drove around with him 
to see these different places. And I'd say, what's that guy over there? Oh, he's just the witch doctor. Everybody's turned away from him now. One of the most moving times, though, for me with this man was at the end of one of our uh, open-air evangelism times. And um, we called people forward for prayer, and we were thinking that our team would pray one individually with each person. But it was such a pressed crowd with probably 10,000 people in attendance, and they pressed up for prayer that it was really impossible to pray for them individually. So my friend Bracious next to me just started yelling out things in Kieran Rwandan, and he was basically saying, if you have a problem with your stomach, raise your hand. These people would raise their hand, and he'd go, pray for their stomachs. So I'd pray for their stomachs. I think we have a pic, yeah. If they have a problem with their arm, raise your hand. And, you know, they're like, you know, so, so we pray. <laughs> and then he said something, and, and he's like, pray for their heads. I go, what did you ask for? He goes, well, they're not very smart. He goes, I asked that, who here is not very smart? We want to pray for you. I'm like, you can't ask that. He goes, we, we can ask that here. It's okay. Like, people really wanted to get help with how smart they are or not. That was the weirdest prayer of my life. God, help them be smarter. And then he's translating the whole time. I'm like, what did you do with that, bro? I gave you nothing. He goes, I got it. I got it. I got it. But that moment right there was not simply a moment to be captured. It wasn't those times ago, look, everybody, this was a single moment, but it was a reality to continue. Because kingdom work is real. And if you do not have a passion for the king, it is impossible to do. And I was doing someone, something with someone who is passionate for the king and willing to do whatever it took. And he is my partner. He is the man who I'm doing ministry with thousands of miles apart. And with that relationship with mind, I read to you Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send, him, to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves 
could not give me. Pray with me. Father, we come before you. I thank you for all that you are doing in our lives, that they're doing in the lives of all those who went before us. I thank you for men like Gracious who selflessly give. I thank you for men like Epaphroditus and Timothy who served you by serving Paul. God, I pray your truth will be permeating our hearts today. We love you. In your name, amen. amen. In a very clear way, Paul gives two examples of people living out the very thing he's been writing about. In the verse that we keep going to in this series is have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember, this is a letter, and like all letters, we should actually read this all in the context. You would not receive a letter in the mail and jump to page three and just read that and put it down. But that's how we teach through it. So in the middle of this letter, he's making some personal references about a couple of guys, but it's in the context of have this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus, that he's identifying this is the very thing that was in Timothy and Epaphroditus. But I'll start with the latter, Epaphroditus. What do we know about him? Well, when the Philippians had heard that Paul was in prison, they were moved. They were moved to action. They sent a gift to him by the hand of Epaphroditus. What they couldn't personally do because of the distance prevented them, they delegated to Epaphroditus to do for them. Not only did they intend to him to be the bearer of their gift, but they also intended for him to stay in Rome and be Paul's personal servant and attendant. But anyone who is, takes up this offer and is willing to be the attendant of a person who is in prison for, you know, against Rome, who's about to be killed, there's something significant about that guy who's willing to do that. And in truth, Epaphroditus risked his life by simply associating himself with Paul. And Paul, back to the Philippians, is saying this. He said, I have to send him back. I want to send him back to you. And I don't want there to be any rumors against Epaphroditus. So he wrote what he found to be the keys of their relationship. He says three significant things about this relationship where true partnership, koinonia, which is so much more than just getting along with each other. It is so much more than just being in the same room with each other, than singing with other, but it is a true partnership of work together. Paul calls him from Philippians 2.25, my brother. This isn't just a slang thing like, ah, oh, my brother from a different mother. Like, ah, oh, I really like him. But it's my brother. We have an emotional connection. We are willing to do things for each other that a friend would not do alone. We were moved by the same things. He calls him a co-worker. So there's not just this emotional connection, but there's this we're doing the same things. We have the same focus. We're about the same things. And then he calls him a fellow soldier. We risked together. That is quite a reference. As a youth pastor for many years, I got asked a lot to write reference letters for students. And there were times I'm like, 
I don't know what you want me to write. <laughs> so sometimes they'd say, why don't you write it? And if I agree, I'll sign it. And you're like, how is that ethical? Don't, that's a different story. <laughs> Sometimes they'd write it and I'm like, wow, I never saw you that way. <laughs> Who knew you saved babies on a train? They were just lying. But the references, that's a challenge. Sometimes it's honestly, it was a challenge. And sometimes it would flow like no problem because there was a relationship there. Paul is saying something about his hope to a community at Philippi on how to receive somebody. Because a community that has been changed by Christ should also honor those who deserve honor. We are a society that looks to promote ourselves so much, we forget to honor those who deserve honor. And it's not because his resume looked so good, it's because of his faithfulness to something. To such a level that a guy risked his life and Paul says, man, he's like my brother. He's like a soldier with me. He's my co-worker. So receive him well. Honor him as he has honored me. I am sending him back to you. Don't look as if he didn't pass the test, like he wasn't good enough, but take him back. He fulfilled. In a short way, he's saying, will you trust him? He can be trusted. Trust. Trust is used so often as some kind of currency, right? We expect it at the beginning of something, a relationship, and then if we ever feel challenged, like, don't you trust me? I remember my daughter as a teenager, sometimes we kind of realign how she was acting. Okay, we were disciplining her. And she's like, don't you trust me? And I'm like, you don't want to ask that question? Because no. And then it was like the worst thing in the world that could happen right there. Because that's what we do with trust. It's like a currency. I'm like, babe, I love you. And trust is something we're going to figure out. Trust. It really gets confusing, I think, when trust is placed in something that handles the trust well versus the thing that doesn't handle the trust well. And here's the key, I think, for community. Are we helping each other to trust? It's so easy to look at other people and go, man, they got trust issues. Like, this is all on them. And you, you may be technically right, but community and a community that's changed by the attitude of Christ says, what can I do to help you trust more? That it's not on you, but it's on me. I'm carrying the weight. We start to see this from other letters of Paul as well. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. He says this, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mystery God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. 
Some might go, man, that's an extra weight. It's just easier to navigate this myself. But can you imagine so selflessly giving your life over to Christ that the barriers and blockage that some people have had because of events in their life where they're not even willing to trust can start to be broken down because that you are becoming a person who's worthy of some trust. I so often have to ask myself, is the trust people are giving me, is that an actual good investment? So that's why I ask myself at the end of every week, is what I'm doing in private make people trust me more or less? But how do you become worthy of that trust? How do you, become, how do you prove yourself to be faithful? The first thing is really this. We've been talking about this. You have to have an eternal change, an internal change. Like that has to be different. Ephesians 4.20, another letter of Paul, he emphasizes this. That however is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. you actually saying who I was is gone and who I am with Christ has been made new. The idea is really the work that has been done in private you can now go public with. The work behind closed doors is the real deal so that when you go public, you are the real deal. And secondly, not only the internal change, but we live knowing and enjoying that the Lord knows and sees everything. To Corinthians, Paul writes, my conscience is clear but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. That word judge may feel like, oh my gosh, heavy. It's also this, the Lord who pays attention to me. Now, I have used this not in good ways. You know, my parents used to use this every time I went out on a date. Remember, Jesus is with you. <laughs> right? Like, you know, God's with you. And I'm like, sweet, he's going to have a good time. <laughs> I was pretty quick with those words of mine. So some of us may feel like the heavy weight, like, oh, is that a way of like making sure I'm a good boy, a good girl? I think it's the other way, meaning he's with you, so he's really pleased with you. Sometimes I go and visit, my wife's a kindergarten teacher, and I'll go and, and, and read a story, and there was a stretch of time I was going a lot. Um, and then from that time, there was recess time. And the recess time really was, I'd show up in the, in the yard, and every kid in her class is like, Mr. Gustafson, look at me. No, look at me, look at me. So literally, my, I just would do this the whole time. <laughs> And there was these boys who were like, watch me run, watch me run. And so I would create these races, like you, to the fence and back, because I was just trying to get them exhausted for my wife's classroom. I'm like, this is the way I can love and support you, honey. I'm going to exhaust all the boys. <laughs> right? And they just would run back and forth. And soon, like, it was four, it was like 100 kindergartners, four classrooms at the whole playground just running. I'm like, 
drop it, give me 10. Boop. And they're like, <laughs> but every day there's like, look at me, look at me. And, and it wasn't because they were amazing going down the slide. They just wanted the eyes on them. And that's what Paul is saying is like, man, I am not perfect, but it is God who pays attention to me. He has me and he realigns me. And a person who is worthy of trust is constantly aware that our Father pays attention to you. You don't have to do anything to get his attention. You already have it. So go well with it. Because it is so easy to confuse character and reputation. You might make it for a long time with poor character. But your reputation takes you, with a poor character, because your reputation takes you a long way. What people think of you can take you a long way until something happens. And then who you really are on the inside. What I strive to see is the goal is to become the person I'm working so hard on portraying to other people. Because the greater value in Christian community, instead of focusing on others' trust, it's simply saying, how can I help you to begin to trust? Because when we can't or we don't trust, we're left to navigate our own thoughts, our own decisions, our own struggles and temptations on our own. We're left carrying baggage on our own. If you see someone with an excess amount of groceries in their arms and you have nothing, most likely you would say, hey, can I help you with that? It goes back to that bearing the burdens of each other. And as we live in journey with each other, and I know that someone who is journeying with me has some real barriers in trusting another. Instead of helping the enemy to continue to use their mind as a playground, I will give them something to believe in. Because the truth is I cannot change your experiences. I can't change what you've gone through. I can't convince anyone to trust me. But I can simply say maybe over time through my actions because of what God has done in me, you will. Because I'm to be who he called me to be. And that becomes worthy of trust and to honor. And even though Paul loves Epaphroditus so much, he does not view that his own needs are greater he has the attitude and mind of Christ by helping others, by sending him back. He writes, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him and the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word honor. It's not really a word we use a whole lot anymore. I don't hear it very often. Like, oh, I'm, I'm honoring you. It's almost like that's too much or something. I'll let you define what you think that means. But I think there's a value of redefining it and to bring honorable lives out of each other. Because what I have found to be true, even the most tense relationships, is that when you honor someone, they start to act honorable in return. It's very counterintuitive at times. And I know when I bring this up, you can think of all of the relationships that don't deserve that. And even in those, I'm asking you to consider even a glimpse of honor. 
I was a part of this group for a little while, and we gathered around a topic that was a situation we were all in, kind of a support group around some physical health stuff. In the very beginning, the first night of this support group, maybe 10 of us around the table, the person who was leading it says, there will be no talk around politics, and there will be no talk around religion. And they kept going on, especially religion. Keep your beliefs to yourself. Don't even bring them up. And I'm like, okay, I got it. And then they're like, so let's go around and meet, meet each other. And I want you to share what you do and why you do it. <laughs> and then the leader said, Dale, go first. Right after she gave like a 15-minute like no religion, no religion, no religion. So I'm like, I'm a brainwasher. No, I didn't say that. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a pastor at a church. And now why do I do that? And they're all looking at me. I'm like, I just love Jesus. Go. <laughs> there was a lady there, and she was really bitter about her husband. Every meeting, she mocked him and made fun of him, and like, he's worthless. Almost like this power she had by doing that. I'd had enough. So I'm like, I think if you actually found something you liked about him, and you honored him a little bit, maybe he might return the honor in his behavior. She's like, I can think of a few things I would say, but I don't want to do that because I, I don't want him to feel too good about himself. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord. Can you try this week one thing to, to act honorable, to, to point out something that is good in him and see how he responds? All right. That next week, she came back and she goes, it worked. I'm like, what worked? Well, I said one nice thing to him, and then he said something nice back, and that felt so good. I just kept saying nice things back to him. <laughs> and then he said nice things back to me. Dale, it only lasted 30 minutes, but it was the 30 greatest 30 minutes of my life. And I'm like, you need to do more, but awesome. Because honoring is simply saying, you are my brother, you are my co I see how God is doing in you and I place you in a different place. I trust you. And now Timothy. Paul writes this, for everyone looks out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. We get a better understanding of Paul and Timothy's relationship when we kind of glance at Paul's letters to Timothy. Not totally sure about when it was written, but it was written around 67 AD. To give you some historical context of also what was happening at that time, Rome burned down in July of AD 64. Nero blames the Christians for this catastrophe, and Christianity was officially made an illegal uh, religion. Peter was martyred in AD 64. Paul is spending his final days on earth in a Roman prison. He is not writing from like, check out our movement, we're killing it. But it's literally falling apart. Except the movement is growing. According to Alan Hirsch from Forgotten Ways, in about 8100, we see there's 25,000 believers. And by 310 AD, there's 20 million believers. 
How can this be true? How can the movement of Jesus Christ continue to move forward? All of this growth happened despite that they were an illegal religion during this time. They didn't have any church buildings as we know them or a junior high to meet in. They didn't have Bibles like we know now. They didn't have a formal organization. They didn't have seeker-sensitive services. They made it really hard to join a church or a CG. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> These things are all counter, and yet they were growing. Paul writes directly to Timothy and I think this is a huge impetus of why it continued to move forward. Paul writes this to him. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Super simple. What is going on inside of you, Timothy, is what's going to move you forward. You see, Nero blames the Christians for the fire that burns the buildings of the Roman Empire. This is the external view of power, right? Paul tells Timothy to let a fire reign in his heart, to kill the old empire in his heart, to refine as the fire that spread in Rome. So may it be true of you that the fire starts to burn inside. But then he goes on, for the Spirit of God gave us the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Though Paul was reminding Timothy, his brother, and the mover and shaker of this, of this ministry and of this movement, that we have a power within us, he's also pointing out most likely to Timothy, you are timid. To be called out can be actually incredibly honoring. Now, how can that be honoring? You might like, no, I don't want to be called out. Because what Paul could be saying to Timothy, I will not let you stay where you are. Because the fire that is in you deserves and will develop so much more. How does this play out? I remember driving my daughter to school when she was a freshman in high school, going to a brand new school, a large school. She didn't know anybody. Public school um, weren't really embracing of her faith. It was hard. It's hard as a dad to drive your daughter to school knowing she doesn't have any friends at that school and that lunchtime and every break is the worst time ever because they just walked around. And you do not try to be trite in those moments, but you try to rely on what you know. And I'd say, babe, I can't fix this for you. But what I can tell you is the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you and is with you. And then I was being Coach Gus, and I'm like firing her up. The, the, the Spirit of the living God. It's like, okay, Dad, enough, enough. <laughs> we're, we're pulling in. And she'd, I'd roll down the windows, you know, to be like, God is with you. And she's like rolling them back up. Okay, preacher boy, roll it back. But those moments are hard. But sometimes we need to be called out. Paul identifies in Timothy, this is what's in you. Power, love, and self-discipline. 
Power, dunamis, which is the Greek word. It's the same word in Acts 1.8. This power is in you. It's miraculous power is in you. Love, it's agape. You're acting on behalf of God to others. So he's saying what's in you is miraculous power and the love of God and self-discipline, which is sound judgment to know how to use miraculous power with the love of God. So that Timothy's greatest value was that he was always willing to go anywhere and his hands, a message was safe as if Paul had delivered it himself. Timothy's one desire was to serve Paul and Jesus Christ. He's the patron saint of like, I want to elevate you. So Paul says, I honor you as well. Honoring. I don't know who you're resisting to honor. You may look at honoring as someone who has all these accomplishments in the world's eyes, but there's a place for us to honor people who have a place in God's eyes of selflessness. The people behind the scenes, the people that may not even be noticed by the world, but a community changed by the attitude of Christ is a community of honor. And we're making it easier for people to trust. A few months ago, Lisa and I were driving back from Southern California visiting our daughter at college. And through the amazing part of technology, through the WhatsApp, was where I communicate mostly with my friend Bracious in Rwanda. The phone rings in my car driving over the grapevine and it says, Bracious, on my little readout. As he's in the jungle in the middle of Rwanda and I'm in my luxurious car with the air conditioning on with my wife. We answer it and Bracious through this delay is like, Pastor Dale, which is amazing because he's only like five years younger than me, but he calls me dad, which some of you have started to as well. Stop it. <laughs> One of you calls me cool dad, so that's okay. You know who you are. And they call Lisa mom, which is even funnier. I'm like, they call you mom. And she's like, stop. So I'm like, dad. We, have, we, we were going to do baptisms at the churches and this company bought the river, which was really just kind of a pond and they read, there's no more water. We need to build a baptism, a baptismal. Will you help us? And I'm like, you know, yeah, I'll help you. He's like, we're going to build one in the middle of all the churches and they only have to walk five miles to the baptismal. And I'm like, they have to walk five miles? He's like, yeah, yeah, I forgot. You guys don't walk anywhere. We walk everywhere, which they do. They call like an overweight person rich because they have a car and everybody else walks. That's just what they say. Like, oh, you, they're, they're, whatever. Okay. It'll be beautiful. We only need $750. As we're driving, I'm like, I honor this guy. Not a problem. So what do you do when you honor someone? You talk about them. To the staff, I start talking about my friend and I'm so excited and, and like they're, they're doing this thing in their building and I'm showing pictures and, and videos and, and this baptismal is almost done and I can't wait to watch the first baptism done from a Rwandan believer because it happens because I honor him. It's not my effort. It's just like the Philippians saying, the distance separates us, so what can I do? So I ask you, what can you do to honor somebody. To honor is to treat something as so precious 
The diamond on your, on your finger probably sparkles because it's polished, because you honor it. The edges of the cards of your favorite book probably are protected because they're precious, because you honor it. The person you care for is not left to wonder whether they're cared for because you honor them. They're precious. And the person you care for is not left uncorrected because you honor them. They're precious. To close, there was this man at my old church. His name was Ken. Ken was in his 80s. And Ken just wanted to serve the church in some way. So he'd get up early. He'd arrive at the church probably 6 a.m. so no one could see him. And we had this really huge parking lot, kind of like what we parked out there at Everett. And he was out there with his blower and his, his uh, broom just sweeping the parking lot because he wanted people to come to see a clean parking lot. Every Sunday morning he's out there and I pull up early and he's so hot. Pastor Dale, it's good to see you. And I'm like, Ken, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. One day after a staff meeting, um, Ken was out there still cleaning and sweeping. And one of the young staff I'm working with said, man, when I get older, I want to be like Ken. I'm like, me too. And I think, you know how you become like Ken when you're older? You start doing what Ken's doing right now. Hey, let's, let's go stand shoulder to shoulder with Ken and just start sweeping with him. And he'll tell us not to, but let's honor him by not just giving him our words, but by giving him our actions and stand next to him and go, Ken, I'm with you. How do we do this? How do we do this? One day we were out there sweeping with him and he just was teary-eyed and he's like, I don't even deserve to sweep with you, Pastor Dale. And I'm like, you don't know me too well, Ken. <laughs> I said, Ken, it's just an honor to be in the same parking lot as you. He floated home that day and I got an email from his wife saying, I don't know what you said to my husband, but he's been nice all day. <laughs> this is like the nicest guy in the world. Friends, community, we honor each other by coming alongside and connecting as brothers and sisters. Not for our own gain, but for the love of the other. We come alongside and we are about the same focus that our city needs Jesus. And we come alongside and we are fellow soldiers walking together. Because as Jesus rode a colt into Jerusalem that last day, he rode in with intentionality. He rode in with a purpose. He rode in to honor all those who had sinned by dying for them. And raising again. I invite you into a community that considers not things we hang on to, but things that we let go of to truly honor. And let's make it easier to start trusting by how we behave. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love, your kindness. Help us to be people that are easy to love. God, let us not make it hard for our brothers and sisters to trust us. God, may this community be different just by how easy it is to lift each other up, how quick we can be to honor each other. Help us to understand these things that are so far beyond us. We love you and we praise you. In your name, amen.